0: Every big company has a chief executive officer, a CEO. Many have CFOs and COOs, but how many have a CXO, a chief exploration officer?
1: The chief exploration officer title is about thinking about existential global challenges facing humanity.
0: And then on the other hand,
1: developing new approaches, often novel technologies, breakthrough technologies that give us more tools as humanity to tackle these big challenges.
0: Welcome to Radio Davos, the podcast from the World Economic Forum that looks at the biggest challenges and how we might solve them. This week, we talked to the chief exploration officer at Chinese tech company, Tencent, who is convinced humanity can do what it does better and greener.
1: There are many new opportunities evolving where we can actually do things better in a more resilient way, in a more intelligent way, with no footprint, or the most minimum footprint imaginable.
0: David Wallerstein, an American who's been at the highest echelons of a Chinese tech giant for decades, also shares some of the secrets of his success.
1: The good and bad news is the answer is pretty darn clear to me. It's
0: constant
1: work. But the thing is... If you're doing something that you love, it doesn't feel like work.
0: Subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave us a rating and please leave us a review. And also, why not join us on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. I'm Robin Pomeroy at the World Economic Forum and talking in Davos to David Wallerstein, chief exploration officer and self-confessed vegan heavy metal guitarist.
1: Next year, if I'm invited, I'll rock the place, though. This is
0: Radio Davos. At the World Economic Forum's annual meeting in May, the Radio Davos Booth saw a procession of some of the world's most interesting leaders from government, civil society, and business. Many of those interviews were for the podcast Meet the Leader. That's the sister podcast of this one. The show in which leaders share their ways of working and talk about the habits they couldn't do without. You can check out all of those interviews, which have some of which have been published, some are still coming up. So subscribe to Meet the Leader wherever you get your podcasts. But in this episode of Radio Davos, I want to bring you one interview i did with a business leader it was david wallerstein he's the chief exploration officer of chinese tech firm tencent now he talked about how he goes around the world looking for innovations that he thinks could change the world he talks in this interview about electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft that he believes could transform transport in the developing world. He talks about the use of artificial intelligence to improve water management and tackle climate change. And he also gave us a glimpse of what it's like to be an American in a leadership role in a big Chinese company. Here's the interview. Welcome to Radio Davos, David Wallerstein. Um, You're a chief exploration officer at Tencent. Tell us a tiny bit about Tencent in a sentence, and then tell us what on earth a chief exploration officer is.
1: Thank you so much for having me today. Tencent is a global technology company. Uh, we started in 1998. We have significant operations in China, but around the world. And uh, we really started with the advent of the internet in China, and then we've grown out to uh, to really embrace all kinds of technologies uh, from there. And I've actually personally been with the company um, um, since uh, the year uh, 2000 I've been started working with Tencent and in uh, 2014 i uh, I took a, a new title I've, I've been a member of the executive team for some time uh, since the beginning uh, of my involvement but uh, I, I adopted the title a chief exploration officer which was an entitled, entirely novel title at the time um, and uh, I've decided after eight years I think this is a very Relevant title for many corporations to to consider having. So, if I could, uh, should I explain what a chief? Yes, please. <laughs> does I'd love to. Okay, know. it's a, as a novel position here. So, um, uh, we started with this position before we had um, all the the dialogue around ESG and uh, carbon neutrality and many of the things being discussed at the World Economic Forum uh, this year. Um, And the way we approach it, therefore, is slightly different than the typical way that maybe corporations are getting involved with ESG. Uh, Basically, at the end of the day, the chief exploration officer title is about thinking about global challenges and existential global challenges facing humanity on one hand, and then on the other hand, developing new approaches, often novel technologies, breakthrough technologies that give us more tools as humanity to tackle these big challenges. So let's say you realize there's a major challenge on the horizon, such as water scarcity. You ask yourself a question, what are the new technologies coming available um, that increase our portfolio of options for attacking this challenge that we can, we can uh, support and we can um, further develop to, to attack those challenges? And that's the job.
0: Okay, so you're exploring innovations, things that can do things that we weren't doing before, and you're specifically doing that in ESG, which is Environmental, Social, and Governance, an acronym that is talked about non-stop here. Now, the skeptics of ESG would say companies are in it to make money. Normally, an executive in your position will be looking around for startups who are going to be the next big thing and going to make you a load of money. I'm guessing you wouldn't mind that happening as well. But presumably from what you've just said, you believe a company can make money and grow, but also can achieve things that work for environmental, social and governance issues.
1: Absolutely. That's the case. At the heart of this strategy is that we are embracing innovation and breakthrough technologies. And when you think about it from a very broad global perspective, when you think about what should the most valuable things on earth be over time? They should be the things that are solving the biggest challenges. And you look at the most valuable companies in the world, and often uh, those are the ones that are solving a very uh, important uh, need for humanity. So it's really about thinking uh, far ahead, uh, not too far ahead, but far enough, maybe five, 10, 15 years into the future. Um, What are the looming challenges that humanity is facing now, and maybe people don't realize it, or is definitely going to be increasingly facing that are unaddressed by the market um, that pose significant risks and then can be tackled with breakthrough technology. And with breakthrough technologies, you have have a chance to fundamentally alter how we try to address those challenge areas. And by capturing the value of that um, in a technology and through an investment, we have an opportunity that if these strategies do well, then we can improve the valuation of our, our, our shareholdings as a as a, as a shareholder in these uh, kinds of businesses, for example. And so it can be very good business. We have, have examples of this well, being a good business. This was my next okay, question. Thanks very much. <laughs> sure.
0: Can you give us some examples of where you've done that or where you would like to do that?
1: Sure. Um, well, so as a company, we invest in early stage companies. Um, often they could just be a seed stage company, a, a few people and raising uh, small amounts of money. In this investment world, hundreds of thousands of dollars is often a small amount of money. But we we can look at those investments and we, we do them uh, quite often. In what uh, kinds
0: of areas, though? Uh,
1: Basically, uh, all kinds of new uh, new technology areas. In my, with my team, we focus on deep technologies. There's about, uh, in my current portfolio that I'm managing at Tencent, there's about 70 companies in that portfolio. And almost all of them are uh, working on some kind of uh, deep technology. About half of them may be in health-related technology, so human uh, health-related uh, uh, issues.
0: What is deep technology?
1: And then deep technology is actually uh, when you're developing a... Uh, uh, an approach that goes beyond only software, or it could be a very a very novel form of software. Like I think with artificial intelligence, we would consider that to be uh, deep technology, but over time, the deep technology, when the the methods and the the methodologies and and knowledge is more proliferated in the society, it becomes more just typical technology. What wouldn't be deep technology is maybe now building a mobile application on your phone, saying uh, booking a hotel or something like this. These are more understood technology tools, but at maybe one point, 20 years ago, they were in the deep technology category. So deep technology today, um, in the com- computer science field, maybe some new uh, path breaking area of AI, or even doing something like a new type of uh, climate forecasting, or something like this that usually would involve very big supercomputers. There's many, many examples of that. Um, and so, is,
0: is climate change one of the main areas, the, the main area you focus on?
1: Uh, well it is a, a very important area but in 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 this framework the exploration framework um we're we're very comfortable to deal with complexity because we're looking at underlying causes and we're trying to solve those underlying causes so when you think about an issue like climate change you have to ask yourself why do we have these challenges around climate change and it's because human beings are trying to meet our fundamental survival needs um which really ultimately uh, at the core around food energy and water, Um, and we call this few. Um, And to meet those survival needs, we're using processes and we're using energy uh, that is actually not very sustainable. It's very understandable why we need to use a a fossil fuel, for example, to heat our homes. Uh, We want to stay warm. It's very painful when it's cold. We want our air conditioners to run when we're not comfortable. Uh, That's a fundamental human need that we need to solve. But the way we're doing it is wrong, and the and the 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 architecture that we're using is flawed, and it creates a huge amount of waste. Um, so then the question becomes: How do we meet our fundamental needs in a way that's resilient, that that keeps our our spaces, for example, uh, warm or cool, gives us the food we need, but doesn't have these terrible polluting effects? Because we're basically using a hundred-year-old technology to meet our needs today. And when you think about it, 100 years ago, the planet only had 2 billion people. And these were new ideas, like a coal-fired plant. Didn't seem uh, that it was gonna be very dangerous to Earth. And no one really, at the t- when you create the first coal-fired plant or the first combustion car, you're wondering if there's gonna be another one produced or will people even buy your combustion car? There was a point in history 100 years ago when you had to decide, do I get a horse or a combustion car, like a Model T? And they're roughly the same price. And over time, people decide on the the combustion car. And then what happens? We have a hundred million of these combustion cars sold a year, uh, every year on earth. And they're creating these massive amounts of pollution. What happened is we went from 2 billion people a hundred years ago to now almost 8 billion. So you've had this massive multiplication of, of population, as well as these means we use to solve our, our our needs, energy, transportation, so on and so forth. And this results in massive pollution. And a big part of that is the CO2 pollution and other greenhouse gases, it's not only CO2, it's also methane and others. So we have to say the needs we're trying to solve are right. The, the applications that we have, like a car, great idea. It's the wrong architecture to realize that when you're using these fuels and you have these global supply chains around moving fuels from one part of the world to another and streaming it into the car and all that. There's m- many more efficient ways that we can do that, as we're seeing with EVs. And so it's really about re-architecting to be more intelligent for the scale that we have today while still acknowledging the the human needs that we have. So I feel that the climate change debate is obviously important. We have to do so much more to abate, you know, the emissions, but we still can't ignore the fact that we're trying to meet fundamental human needs. And we're trying to do that globally. We're trying to bring people out of poverty, starvation. We've got food security challenges on the horizon. We can't. Uh, just try to uh, look at these problems from a very narrow perspective and you're trying to solve one aspect of it but then you forgot the whole everyone needs uh, 1500 calories a day aspect you know and they need fertilizer and we need to take care of these needs so we have to actually re-architect to become more intelligent.
0: So what are the exciting ways you're looking at that that address some of those problems we're aware of electric vehicles. Interesting analogy you gave about, do I buy a horse or do I buy a Model T Ford? I guess people today who are lucky enough to be able to afford a new car, they're deciding, should I get a plug-in car? And is the electricity I'm getting from that produced by renewable energy anyway? There are choices. The technology is there for a lot of these things, but other things beyond the, the fairly mundane ones that I know about that you're exploring around the world you know, pick what whichever problem you like, whether it's fuel, energy or water or anything else. Is there some technology there that really, you know, gets you excited?
1: Yeah, I, well, I think right now at this point in history, we're very focused actually on replacing our architecture uh, and continuing to have the kinds of uh, innovations we've had as humanity for the past 100 or 200 years, but doing it more resilient in a more resilient way. But often sometimes it's a little bit boring, you know, like elect- electricity uh, sources don't really excite people. You might go from a coal fire plant to a solar uh, plant or a windmill. And it was good that we did it, but you kind of just ended up where you were before. Um, but these are important innovations and probably the bulk of our work is in that area. However, I think there are many new opportunities evolving where we can actually do things better, more in a more resilient way, in a more intelligent way, uh, with, with no footprint or the most minimum footprint imaginable. Um, that's actually just a purely better uh, approach than what we have today. Um, something I've been spending a lot of time on as an example uh, for the past five years is electric aviation. And in particular, uh, a subset of electric aviation called uh, electric vertical takeoff and landing plants, eVTOL. Um, if you haven't heard of this uh, term, it's really interesting to look it up. And what eVTOL allows you to do is with a battery um, like you have in an EV, um, you can actually you know, charge your plane. This plane can take off vertically with very low noise, um, no, no pollution. Think again about an EV. There's no pollution coming out of it. Um, obviously, this needs to be charged with green energy. And you can fly hundreds of kilometers away uh, very quickly, avoiding all the Uh, all the traffic on the ground, and so on and so forth, and land at your destination. Your destination actually doesn't even need to be at the end of a road. It could be on the top of a mountain, top of a hill. Uh, What this now enables is for humanity to travel very fast to basically any destination you point to on a map, as long as you can land there with permission and there's regulation and all these other things. But uh, this to me strikes me as the next generation of transportation going beyond the ground, you know, car that we've all become very familiar with over the past hundred years, because what it basically allows you to do now from an efficiency perspective is simply build these planes, build places to land them. You know, they don't need so much space. You you can charge them, but electricity is everywhere. You just need to get the connection into the plane um, with an interface. And now you're flying and your infrastructure is the air, so I'm very interested in this technology for the developing world. The, the planet uses $1 trillion of investment a year for road infrastructure. It's the single biggest category of investment in the world. It's not healthcare, it's not power generation. You read a lot about power generation. Of course, you know everyone feels like their healthcare budgets in their countries are huge and things like this. Actually, the single biggest category for investment for humanity, $1 trillion a year or more, is road infrastructure. And I'm thinking, and of course, it's polluting. There's all these resources going to, into it. So, how can you actually f- imagine new infrastructures that are fundamentally better because you're moving faster around the globe and getting to your destination faster without traffic? But you're also using less resources. It's only, you know, renewable energy into the plane, and then the air is your infrastructure, and then you land. I love examples like this where as humanity we're moving forward with with something that's more exciting and more enabling and resource efficient.
0: You make a really interesting point there about the developing world, because yeah, we do a lot of social videos on flying cars, flying taxis. Everyone loves these videos, right? But there is sometimes this feeling of, this is a rich a, a rich person's toy. What you're saying is, actually, no, this is a genuine, hey, it could be a rich person's toy, but the one application here is to get people or goods around in places that need to get people and goods around, but don't have any roads right now.
1: Absolutely. And it's very exciting from that perspective, when you think about the overall investment required to realize a transportation infrastructure, when you kind of aggregate all of the costs in the system, and you can you can see how actually capital efficient this is. And and then the question is, well, can this be global? Why is it not perceived to be more global? I think that's just a matter of communication and and showing the case studies and engaging with different parts of the world. Uh, I would say at the same time, it is true when you buy a new piece of hardware like a plane, it is expensive. So the que- the question is, who wants to pay for it first? And that's really how the technology will evolve. You know, Tesla started with their cars at the higher end of the market, these Model S's, Model X's, and then came out with Model 3. And who knows where they're going to go from here with more affordable cars. And then, of course, there's a whole EV industry now developing globally with more affordable models. But it may start for a little bit of time at the higher end, just the way the markets work. Um, but over time, this should be a far more efficient efficient transportation technology for the planet, especially in the developing world. Why why sit in traffic? Why do you have to build a bridge across a... Uh, you know, a, a, an area where it doesn't get much traffic, but you absolutely need that bridge to, to be able to move. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to be a better uh, experience for those people. And just think about in the developing world, people went right to mobile. They didn't have to do dial up often and have big sloppy computers. You know, they it is possible to leapfrog. Mm-hmm. And that's what's very exciting about this technology to me is, is actually leapfrogging just for fundamental, better architectures for the developing world.
0: Another area you're really interested in is water scarcity. Tell me about this movie that you've been involved with called Day Zero. What is that movie? What's your involvement? Well, in thank
1: you very much. So I uh, started to make Day Zero in the year 2017. Um, it's a documentary movie and a very serious documentary uh, movie on uh, the global water crisis, which is really uh, uh, explained by uh, the following. So. Uh, With climate change, we're actually getting shifting patterns of water uh, falling on Earth. In some cases, uh, there's drought, significant drought, and agricultural regions around the world are facing this drought. But in other parts of the world, there's floods, there's too much water. And when that too much water situation, those floods, affects agricultural regions, we're also facing another kind of stress. So so agricultural productivity is going to be facing challenges on all sides. Uh, the movie really tries to explain this new dynamic um, from a very global perspective. It's not only a story about, let's say, the United States or, or somewhere else in the world. It's a global story, and it seeks to try to help audiences understand how when you have climate change, you're actually getting these dramatically shifting uh, climate patterns and water precipitation patterns around the world. And uh, And the movie is very serious, which I think was new for a documentary movie to to have a, a climate uh, change movie that that is very serious and focuses on um, these key issue, issue areas. So it is now available on um, Amazon Prime in uh, the United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, on many broadcasters uh, around the world, often on TV um, uh, broadcasters. And we hope people get a chance to see
0: it. On water scarcity, I mean, what are the solutions, do you think, are there technologies that can help? Because I mean, if a country ceases to get its water from the way it's been getting it for hundreds or thousands of years. There's not much you can do, is there?
1: I think there's a lot that can be done, actually, and this is actually related to another innovation area that we're very interested in, which is artificial intelligence. Let me explain. So um, we actually released a book uh, last year uh, called "Rearchitecting Earth: uh, Artificial Intelligence for Food, Energy, and Water." Actually, it was released in China in Chinese. It's not in English yet, but the premise of the book is the following: that in most countries around the world, developed or developing, um, a majority of the water is either used for agriculture, sometimes up to 70% of national water going to agriculture. And another, let's say 40 to 70%, let's say more like 40% uh, depending on the uh, power uh, sector situation in, the nation, in a nation for power. So basically like take a nation like the United States, about 80% of all water in the US is flowing through the agricultural system, about 40% and about another 40% is actually flowing through the energy system. This is the nature of thermoelectric power. So uh, thermoelectric power means you're applying heat to water as it passes through, and then that's spinning a turbine and it's creating your, your energy, even nuclear uh, does this. And so um, the idea is the following. If you can use artificial intelligence to more accurately only apply the necessary amount of water to your agricultural system, and your energy system, you can significantly reduce the amount of water being used by those sectors, particularly agriculture. Um, We often found uh, around the world that when you apply artificial intelligence to the fields uh, for agriculture, that the plants are often healthier when you're optimizing the amount of water they need, meaning that usually farmers are overwatering their plants. You can use sensors and other forms of artificial intelligence to understand what the optimum amount of water is to to precisely deliver to a plant. And usually they're just getting too much. So in many strategies, when you try to optimize the health of a plant, you actually end up reducing the amount of water used by 20 to 40%. So let's say you can get a 20 to 40% gain on 40 to 70% of the water being used in your nation or your region. Um, It's a significant gain. Um, It doesn't have to be, well, agriculture needs so much water because they got to grow their food. What am I supposed to do? It's not about that. It's really saying, Let's optimize plant health, let's use technology like artificial intelligence to truly understand how can I get the most out of that plant. We love our plants, right? We don't want to overwater them. But at the same time, you're going to be saving on water. And this is, so, this is such an important idea that I feel that uh, governments and, and ministries of agriculture haven't fully embraced it yet. Um, there is a cost to deploying these technologies, you have to have the know-how. Uh, there may be some limited, you know, capital expenditures or adoption, but these are really low cost uh, technologies in the overall scheme of things. And I think, um, this idea of efficiency, resource efficiency and saving and conserving, conserving, but doing it through software that moves very fast and very efficiently is not fully appreciated as a strategy for resilience and even, uh, attacking climate goals. Uh, if I could just say further, um, uh, There's a powerful relationship between food, energy, and water when you try to optimize for all three factors together. As I was saying, water is a key input for energy. Energy is a key input for pumping water in the agricultural fields. Uh, It goes on and on and on how these areas are related to each other. And once you actually start to try to optimize for all three together using intelligence, you can really get very holistic gains in a region. Let's say you don't need to pump that water anymore for your fields. Well, you've just saved on energy as well. So now you've actually contributed to to a balancing uh, act on the grid. You're you're drawing less energy. Uh, if you can remove your coal-fired plants from a region. Um, and you replace it with solar or wind, now you have an entirely water-free uh, form of energy. You're not having to do any calculations or any kinds of uh, things around water transport because now your energy is now water-free. You can just deploy all that water for something else. It becomes very interesting when you think about these three in combination and you can really develop resilient uh, regions and societies around that. I hope this is an idea that, uh, that gets more discussion around the world.
0: Tell us something about yourself then. I'm reading an article here in front of me. It calls you the guitar playing vegan who's based in Palo Alto, California. So how does a guitar playing vegan based in Palo Alto, California, become a senior executive in a massive Chinese technology company?
1: Well, uh, so (laughs) that's, uh, I I would say those things sound true. Uh, I'll (laughs) validate the rumors, Uh, they sound true. But I've been with Tencent Uh, Like I said, since the year 2000, I've been living in China uh, on and off since 1994, also in the U.S. and and even Japan uh, for a while uh, since I think the late 80s, early 90s. And so I've been spending many years of my life from a very young age, uh, even when I was in high school uh, in Asia, you know, Japan and China. And then, of course, uh, the U.S. and then other uh, Western countries. Um, And really, I mean being in a company for 22 years, I started when it was 45 people in Tencent. It, it's really like family. And many of our executives um, who were there at the beginning are still with us now. So we have very uh, deep relationships uh, throughout the company. I always felt um, that that China is is was always very interested to get these ideas from uh, the rest of the world to figure out the best way to incorporate uh, Western ideas with also, you know, uh, Chinese ideas about how to develop. And uh, I always felt very welcome to raise uh, challenging ideas and to try to do things uh, unconventionally in the team. Um, It probably helps though, that I speak Chinese and and read and write. And I'm often in our our company environment in China, I'm working in Chinese. but um, and then and then we go to this kind of guitar playing vegan kind of stuff that was mentioned. I think uh, there is something very interesting about the corporate environment in China, or at least our Tencent environment, which was always very, um, very interested in, in kind of our own, you know, personal habits and things like that. And really, when, when people found out that I play guitar, you know, they want to do events, they want to see what what I can do. And they bring me out in front of crowds there and the vegan aspect you know if, if people ask me about that it becomes very interesting and very curious and and about this and I, I found um you know the Chinese market very interested in innovation new approaches and um, and and I you know I, I try to do what I can uh, through my role as a Cxo to to extend uh, just some new ideas and new ways of thinking uh, not just in within Tencent, but across the the Chinese market. Um, I think we also have a responsibility to do that. But I guess sometimes uh, some of the personal uh, hobbies and things like that also go into the the picture.
0: You didn't bring your guitar to Davos? eh?
1: I didn't. uh, Next next year, if I'm invited, I'll rock the place, though. Just let me know. Can I join you
0: on bass? yeah are you kidding
1: of course (laughs) i mean i i think i think davos probably needs a a, like a heavy metal band or a a lot of tension building up in the world we need a release out here you know and everyone thinks we're so we are most people are wearing ties i'm putting on a jacket i think um you know most people as soon as they leave the place they put on a t-shirt so maybe there's an aspect to this where we can kind of let our hair down a bit
0: we have a podcast called meet the leader where we interview leaders of companies and I think one of the keys, th- usually it's my colleague, Linda Lucina, who does those interviews. But uh, one of the questions she she asks is, you know, what, what's the one habit you wouldn't be without? You know, that as a leader, what's the, what's the thing that you do?
1: A habit as a leader? For myself? Yeah. I know, that I that, that, that works great.
0: for you and that maybe it would work for other people.
1: Yeah. Well... I would say actually my own experience now and, and having, you know, I've been working now probably for 25 years and with Tencent for about 22 years. And it's really interesting. Like here I am in the executive team and sometimes, you know, obviously having leadership responsibilities. So what, what really would account for that? And I think, um, the, the, the good and bad news is the answer is pretty darn clear to me. It's constant work. But the thing is, if you're doing something that you love, it doesn't feel like work. Like, to be quite honest with you, my CXO role, uh, people, I try to explain it as if it's a real job, <laughs> and, and I hope it is a real job, eight years running now, but it's really more like a mission. I'm thinking about it constantly, and I'm not, uh, you know, this is why I don't like to use the term ESG, because sometimes I feel that... Some of these concepts are forced upon industry a bit, and this is a good forcing, but but sometimes people react. And it's like, okay, they're saying we have to do something about carbon neutrality. So I gotta try to figure out the words everyone's using and then reflect it back. But the actual reality of what's happening in the world is very complicated. Um, and I feel like the way to really dig in past it is just to treat it like a mission and constantly be thinking about it, working, you know, but. I was going to say working around the clock, but again, the work shouldn't feel like work. It should feel like you're just genuinely interested in this challenge that we're facing, and then we're using technologies, really using them to address the challenges. And you're trying to foster these companies who need, uh, you know, startup companies are always in danger of going bankrupt and things like this. But you're trying to foster them to give them a chance to to have a new solution that the world can benefit from. And I think again. That's a two part answer then. treat your work as a mission. See valuing people as the fundamental value for what you're doing through your mission, right? Whatever that expression of, of it is, whatever you're doing every day, you're always serving people, right? And then when you're truly engaged, you, and your heart is in it. When you're working around the clock morning to night, you think about these things all the time. It's it's very easy to do because it's all about the mission. So try to get to that point.
0: David Wallerstein, CXO Chief Exploration Officer at Tencent. Thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: David Wallerstein of Tencent talking to me in Davos. Please subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts and please leave us a rating and a review and join the conversation on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. This episode of Radio Davos was written and presented by me, Robin Pomeroy, with studio production by Gareth Nolan. We'll be back next week, but for now, thanks to you for listening and goodbye.